my name is Josh, um, Josh Williams. I am a, a church planning resident um, with here at CRC, and I get the privilege of preaching the text of Scripture this morning. Um, usually it's not me. Usually I'm not the guy. Um, usually it's Brett Lewis, pastor for vision and preaching here, or one of our other pastors who takes us through a book. Um, Brett usually takes us through a book, and he just takes us on through, and it's really good, really meaty, meat and potatoes, and the off-series sermons are also just as good. Um, but I get to fill in this morning. So i um, thankful to be able to preach. If I can put a plug really quick about church planting, um, there's going to be a vision casting meeting on January 26th, um, right after service. With God's help, I'm hoping to be sent off to plant a church in the city of West St. Paul. And here's what I want to say about church planting. We're not just going to plant another church. We're going on a mission. We're going on a mission. There are broken, dying, hurting people out there, and we're going on a mission to bring the hope of Christ to them, that, that they be able to say, yet not I, but Christ in me. So if you're interested in learning about church planting in West St. Paul, please come to that vision casting meeting. Um, there will be food there. You don't have to figure out food plans. All you have to do is come. All you have to do is come and eat and just listen. Um, so just remember, January 26th, after service, food will be there. Okay? Awesome. Okay, let's get into the Word. Today we're going to be in the letter to the Colossians. I promise I'll stop sniffling here. Um, anytime I preach, I'll be taking us through Colossians. So if you have a Bible right now, um, open up to Colossians chapter 1. We're going to be in verses 1 through 14. If you have a paper Bible, we still do use paper here. Um, you can use that, so don't feel bad about that. If you're a little bit more high techy, you can use your Bible app. That's totally fine. And we're cool with that. Um, but if you don't have any of those, then it's just this, the verses are going to be on the screen for you. But as you're getting there, I want to recap where we've been so far. Uh, last week, we covered verses 1 through 8. And we found that Paul, he's writing to a group of newer um, Colossian Christian believers. And one of Paul's trusted friends and co-workers in the gospel, his name is Epaphras. He leaves Colossae to visit Paul in prison. He brings Paul some good news. And some of the Colossian people have heard the gospel from Epaphras. And Epaphras tells Paul that they've responded by putting their hope in Christ. And so this hope, it's showing itself in a lived-out faith in Jesus, love and care for fellow believers. Um, but the bad news is that there is certain people, Paul calls false teachers, they're kind of spreading some false views about God. And so Paul, he, he writes to encourage these Colossian believers. And in the, in the verses that we covered last week, Paul encourages them that the gospel is a living message. It gives hope that produces faith and love when it takes root in the soil of people's hearts. That was the main point last week. And today we're going to be covering verses 9 through 14. And Paul, he tells them that he's been praying for them. And what he has been praying for them, he is telling them something about God that's really going to help combat the teaching of these false teachers. So before we get started, let's just pray. Let's just pray and go to the Lord and just ask him for his help to receive his word this morning. And then we'll read the passage. Lord, thank you so much. Um, I think for the hope that you give us in Christ, that, that, that I think there's nothing in us, it's all Christ, it's Christ in us, and, and so Lord, I pray that you would really open our hearts, to, I think, to receive that, the Lord, especially as the passage talks about that this morning, Lord, that you would open our hearts to receive your word this morning. I, I, I'm nothing but a herald, I'm just, I'm just a messenger bringing your message, Lord, and so would you just lift our eyes towards you this morning, would you help me to speak your message this morning, would you give us ears that are open to hear, give us eyes that are, that are able to see, God, give us hearts that are receptive and responsive to your word, Lord, because without you, we can't, we can't grab this. We can't grasp it. We can't hold on to it. We have no hope of it transforming our life unless you step in and come in and change us. And so, Lord, would you, would you be so pleased to do that this morning? In your name I pray. Amen. Okay, chapter 1, starting in verse 1. 
Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae. Grace to you and peace from God our Father. We always thank God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. When we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing as, also, as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God and truth, just as you learned it from Epiphas, our beloved fellow servant. He is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Steve Childers is the founder of an organization called Pathway Learning. Pathway Learning, it seeks to really provide cross-cultural theological training to underserved church leaders and aspiring church planters worldwide. Childers made this amazing observation. He says this. It's going to be on the screen. Behind every person's behavior are their values. Behind every person's values are their beliefs. And behind... Every person's beliefs is their worldview. Our behaviors are what we do and what we don't do. Our values are what we say is good and not good. And our beliefs are what we say is true and not true. But our worldview, our worldview answers the questions of our beginnings. Like, what do I come from and what's my purpose? Questions of the problem of evil. What is evil and where does it come from? Questions of issues of hope. What's my hope? And questions about our future. What, what's our future? What's my future? What's your future? And so Steve Childers, he says that there is no, or there, there's, there's going to be, uh, there's no hope for lasting, complete change in a person. Or sorry, Childers says that for there to be any lasting change and complete change in a person, you can't just stop at the behaviors. You can't, you can't just stop at what you do and don't do. There has to be Transformation. You have to get deeper than the behaviors. You actually have to get to the core of the person. You have to go deep, dive deep through their values. You have to dive deep through the beliefs and get to the core of someone into their worldview. And so typically, whenever people think about Christianity, one of the things people think about is beliefs. What we believe, what we believe about. Jesus, what we believe about. God, what we believe about. The world, what we believe about. Humanity. But the gospel doesn't just stop at our beliefs. Yes, it deals with behaviors. Yes, it deals with values. But the gospel doesn't go there first, believe it or not. It goes straight for the core of us, past our beliefs, straight for our worldview, and transforms the way we live. Jesus doesn't just give us a guaranteed hope in the gospel. Jesus gives us a whole new worldview that we build our life on. And so a whole new way of life that is centered on the gospel. But with these false teachers, that what they were offering, 
It was a life that was centered on yourself. It was really self-focused. Paul hears that from Epiphas that these false teachers, they were spreading this idea that in order for you to stay in good standing with God, you have to please them. See, for them, for them, Jesus might have been a good starting point, but you actually have to move on from Jesus and go on to something more mature, so they thought. Just so they thought. The false teachers, they focused on behavior. Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. It was do's and don'ts language. It was about what you stayed away from. It was about what you did and didn't do as if you could actually make God happy with you. And ever since Paul heard about this, he's been praying for them. He's been praying that they would live a gospel-centered life. Not just put their hope in the gospel, but now live a gospel-centered life. And in this prayer, Paul wants them to understand this, that the gospel-centered life is a spirit-depending and Christ-reflecting life. The gospel-centered life, it's spirit-depending and Christ-reflecting. And in this prayer, he talks about that. And he talks about it by saying where it comes from and then what it looks like also. It's spirit-depending and it's Christ-reflecting. So let's see how he unfolds that. Let's look at verse 9 and we'll go through the first part in verse 10. It says, And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and our spiritual wisdom and understanding so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him. Look at what Paul is saying at the beginning of this prayer. He says he is asking for something so that something could happen. The so that phrase really gets at what Paul is after. The chief goal for Paul in this prayer is that they would live in a manner worthy of the Lord. Paul has this habit of using this picture of, of, uh, of walking to make a reference to the Christian life, to, like, to how you actually live. And so that is the case almost every time he uses the word walk. There's only a few instances where that's not true, but this time he is heavy on the live, on your actions, on the way that you live when he uses walk. So Paul is interested in how they live. He wants them to, let's just flip the transition a little bit, live in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him. Meaning that, what does my life look like? What do I need to do to live that way? And just a teaser, just a teaser, he's going to explain that, what that looks like in the second half of verse 10 all the way through verse 12. But before he gets there, he's asking God to give them what they need in order to live in a manner worthy of the Lord. So what, is it, what do they need? What exactly do they need? And if that's going to happen, what do they need to have for that to happen? He says they need knowledge of God's will, and they need spiritual wisdom and understanding. See, wisdom is taking what you know and then knowing how to put it to practice. It usually comes from experience, a little bit of trial and error. Have you been there before? Understanding is taking what you know and grasping what that means for whatever it applies to. And knowledge here is to know about something. And in this case, he wants them to know about God's will for them as Christians. So Paul wants them to know God's intentions for them as Christians. He wants them to know God's desire for them as Christians. And he doesn't just want them to know. He doesn't want them just to sit in their heads. He wants them to have this understanding to know what that means for their life and the wisdom to know how to put it to practice. And he says, all wisdom, all understanding Every situation possible. He wants them to know what God's intentions for them, what that means in a very practical way in their life. That's what he wants for them. So Paul knows that if they could just perceive God's intentions and his, and his desires for them and this new life that they have in Christ, if they could just understand what that means for their life, if they could just have the wisdom to know how to put that to practice, then... They would, have, they would be able to live in a way that's pleasing to the Lord. 
And so what's really important here is how they get it. That's what I want you to look at really quick. How they get it really separates the gospel from this man-centered living that these false teachers are, are putting forward. Because these false teachers, they thought they had a monopoly on truth. They thought that their religious teaching was the key to life. That all you had to do was come to them, listen to them, and do what they're saying. But Paul says, you get it by being filled. By who? What's the, that's the question. Who, who fills you? If you get it by being filled, that's a receiving thing. Who fills you? The Spirit. The Holy Spirit. God's Spirit. God gives it to you. This is a spiritual wisdom and understanding, he says. This is a knowledge that comes from God himself. It's not a human wisdom. It's not a human wisdom. This is not something that comes from rigorous study alone. This kind of ability to understand the heart of God for the Christian life, you don't earn this. You don't earn it. You don't do anything for this. It doesn't come from you. It doesn't come from me. It doesn't come from anybody else, any other human. It comes from God himself, straight from him. And I want to be clear. This is not a smack against knowledge as an information. Paul is not against knowledge here. He's not against learning because he's actually going to spend the rest of this letter teaching them what Christ means for them, what it means for Christ to be both sufficient and supreme in their life. He's going to spend his time teaching that. But here's what Paul knows. Here's what he's getting at in this passage and what the rest of scriptures teach. No matter how much Paul teaches them about the gospel, these Colossian Christians are helpless without God helping them, giving them the wisdom and insight into what it practically means for your life. They are utterly helpless without God. Without God's help, it's just going to sit in their heads. It's not going to make it to their heart and spread to their hands and feet. It's just going to sit right there in their heads. And so... Paul's making this big distinction between knowledge that comes from the Spirit compared to the knowledge of these false teachers. The knowledge of these false teachers was nothing more than self-effort religion. It's just really self-promoting, self-doing. They focus on what you did and didn't do in hopes that it would actually please these angelic beings to bring you to God. That's, that's, what, that's what they thought. It was angel worship. And the problem with that is that it looked authentic. It looked legit. Like, it actually looked like it was working. Like, they, like they, they were onto something. But all their man-centered efforts was doing was cleaning themselves up on the outside, but they were dying on the inside. You get so preoccupied with, with what you're doing that you lose sight of what's underneath the surface, the problem underneath the surface, as if you can make yourself pleasing to God. Their religion produced this gravesite kind of life. The tombstone, it looks really beautiful on the inside. But underneath, in the casket, in the grave, there's nothing but death and a decomposing body. Looks nice on the outside. It's a religious, it looks, looks beautiful on the inside, but underneath, you're just dying on the inside. But the knowledge Paul is talking about is different. The knowledge the Holy Spirit gives, it's, it's kind of this bone connecting, kind of muscle fiber building, this really heart thumping life. There's a beating heart inside the person in this, in this kind of wisdom that the Holy Spirit gives. That what, what he does, what the gospel does, it just produces a life rather than create a dead person. And so the Holy Spirit is, is for you. In the gospel, God is for you. He's working on your behalf. The Holy Spirit is not a barrier between you and God. He lives in the hearts of those who put their faith in Christ, who are hoping in the gospel. He is a gift to the believer to empower them for this kind of life, to, to live a life that is pleasing to God. So a, gospel, a gospel-centered life is a spirit-dependent life. Because without him, you're just, 
you're kind of just running these religious, self-driven circles without Jesus. You, the way that Matt Chandler talks about it, he says, it's like running on a, tr- uh, a treadmill and you're going nowhere. You're running as hard as you can, but you're still in the same spot. I think at first glance, you can read these verses and say, oh man, that's, that's so good. A walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. I want to put that on a mug. I want to put that on a t-shirt. That's really exciting. I want to know how to do that. Man, that sounds beautiful. But then you start focusing on what you do. You start focusing on what you need to do to please the Lord. As if to, you put the stress on making yourself worthy to God. And I just want to say you have to be really careful about that. Be really careful. Because our natural instinct is to focus on what we have to do. Like, like what am I doing? What am I doing with my hands? And that's the culture we live in. We live in this worth culture. This kind of culture where you do to earn your worth. We spend so much time trying to prove ourselves. We spend so much time trying to, trying to make ourselves appear as a certain way. We try to earn our way before people. And the problem with that is that we just we love that narrative. We, we love that story. We love stories of, of making it because it seems like we overcame something. We, we love that kind of story because it smells of success. Somehow it's, more, it's way more noble it's, it's more valiant to kind of work hard and then overcome something, like to, to achieve something. Who doesn't like to achieve here? But then I think what can become a further problem for us is that in the Christian community, we kind of sort of bring that mentality into our walk with Jesus. You know what I mean by that? Instead of using the gifts of God to, to enjoy him, we end up using them as a way to perform for him. And when I say God's gifts, I mean what in Christian history has been called the ordinary means of grace. I'm talking about the Sunday service, the corporate gathering, what we're doing right now, Bible reading, prayer, living life on life with other believers, doing life, being in a life group, being in community with people. They can kind of become another area where we try to make ourselves worthy to God rather than using them to enjoy him. Just to enjoy him. See, there's a big difference between making yourself, your life, worthy to God and then walking in a manner worthy of the Lord. See, the first one, it puts the focus on your worth. The second one, it puts, it puts the focus away from you on, on the worth of Jesus. One is you dependent, and what is, one is spirit dependent. Are you following with what I'm saying? So when Paul is talking about walking here, he's talking about walking in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing him. He's not talking about you living in a way that makes you worthy enough to be with God. He, and he helps you see that through verses 12. And let's read it. It says, giving thanks to the Father who has, what's that say? Qualified you to share an inheritance of the saints in light. And keep reading. Look at verses 13 and 14. He, meaning God, has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son. In who, who's that who? Jesus. We have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. God, he qualifies you. The one that Paul is asking to give these Christians what they need to live in a manner worthy of the Lord is the same exact one, Paul says, qualifies you. So God makes you worthy to be with them. It was on his own dime. It was his own expense. It was at his own cost. He qualifies you. He delivered. He transferred. Are you feeling what he's saying here? You did nothing. And that's good news. The good news of the gospel is not just that God worked on your behalf to restore you to himself. God worked on your behalf so that he could keep you restored to himself. To 
keep you, to hold on to you. No one's snatching you from his hands. He doesn't just pay your entry fee. He, he pays for your staying fee. He pays for you to live there. You do nothing. He does it all. And so this defines what it means to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. The, the focus is on, is on Christ. It's not on you. It's not on your effort. It's on Christ. To walk in a manner worthy of the Lord means to live in a way that matches the worth of Christ. It, it's living worthy of your relationship to Christ. This is, it's your conduct. The con, your conduct, the way that you live, really matches the worth of what Jesus has done for you. It should really reflect who Christ is to you, Christian. It should really reflect what, what Christ has done in your life and who he is to you. It should really reflect that Jesus is now king in your life. Your life should really match that. that, you, that you're, not just, you're not just with this guy. You're not, you're not with the hippie who kind of was homeless and kind of hung out and just, just kind of did the homeless thing. No, you, you came, you, you, your life is connected to this king, this son of God who came down among us and brought you into his kingdom and says, you have a seat in my house. You have a home with me. A gospel-centered life is a Christ-reflecting life, and Paul tells us what that looks like. Look at, look at verses 10 through 12. Starting in the second half of verse 10. Bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. So what does it look like for, for Jesus to be king in your life? What does it look like for Jesus to be king of your life? What does it look like for your whole life to be reflecting the continual work of Jesus through the Holy Spirit in your life? After telling them that he's been praying for him, Paul is saying, if you just grasp my intention, or God's intentions for your life, then this is what your life looks like. And Paul gives them these three pictures of what a Christ-reflecting life looks like, and it's really encouraging. Here they are. He gives this picture of growing, of being empowered, and thankfulness. The first one is growing. He says that your life is bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. What exactly does that mean, Paul? Well, what are you saying here? He talks about bearing fruit back in verse 6. The gospel was bearing fruit and increasing in people's hearts around the world. Not just around the world, right smack dab in the Colossian city, among the Colossians. And it wasn't just a one-time thing. This was continually happening. It was continually going on. In terms of what was actually happening, he was talking about their actions, their conduct. Later on in verse 21, he says they used to be known for evil deeds. But now because of the gospel's impact in their hearts, now they're known for good works, good deeds. And in verse 8, Paul says the main action that Prophecy has been telling him about is about their love and the spirit. See, the good deeds that Paul is telling him about is love. It's not this like mushy idea. It's this real acting thing. Actions that are defined by love for other people. Actions that had its aim to demonstrate love towards other people. Love. Genuine care and concern for other Christians was the fruit of the gospel taking root in someone's life. The, the kind of fruit Paul is talking about is actions that has love at the root of it. Love at the root of it. And it should be increasing. Here's what's interesting about how it should be increasing. It should be increasing in the knowledge of God. Your love, your, your acts of love should be increasing with the knowledge of God. The more they grasp God's will for them, the more they should be bearing the fruit of love towards other people in their lives. 
The more they grasp God's heart for them, the more their heart should go out towards others. More knowledge should not leave you self-centered. More knowledge of God should not leave you really navel-gazing, focusing on yourself. More knowledge of God should actually lead you to being other-centered. It should cause you to really look out. Being filled, being, being understanding of the compassion of Christ should really lead you to just being compassionate towards other people. It should leave you focused more on what Christ has done rather than what you're focusing on doing and not doing. And that's what the false teachers were after. Really focus on, hey, what am I doing with my hands? What am I doing with my feet? What, what am I not doing instead of looking at Christ? And here's what's encouraging about this. You can grow in this. Like, like Paul's not saying, he's not saying, you should be perfect at this. As soon as you get this, bam, you're awesome. Just perfect mid condition. No. You're growing in this. Bearing fruit, increasing in the knowledge of God. You should be growing in this. And I know some of you A-type personality people, you're probably thinking, oh man, I don't look like this. I need, I need to get this down. What do I need to do, Josh? Tell me. No. No, 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 no. Remember. Remember you are spirit dependent. Remember that. Take a cue from Paul's prayer. Ask God to take, to take what you know about the gospel and then drive that sucker deep into your heart. Not sucker, I don't know why I said that. Drive, drive the knowledge deep into your heart. <laughs> Ask the Lord to fill you with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding for all circumstances. So Christ's reflecting life is not, it's not just growing, but you're empowered. You're empowered by God for this kind of life. Look at verse 11. Being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy. This one's my favorite one. This one's my favorite one. A Christ-reflecting life is one that is empowered by, by God. Paul says you are being strengthened with all power. You are being strengthened by God to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. You are being strengthened to bear the fruit of love in your life in every good work. See, power for Paul means, it's just his, his kind of fancy way of saying ability. God gives you the ability to do what he's calling you to do. He doesn't, he doesn't say love your neighbor as yourself and then say, good luck. Go get him, tiger. What God asks you to do, he empowers you to do. He gives you what you need to do it. This is a spirit-depending language. You can't do this on your own. Paul says, all power according to God's glorious might. This power is not chump change. These aren't pennies. You have, you're matching this power that God, you're matching this, the strength that God gives to his power, to his mighty power. And that means you're not lacking. Never lacking. You have all that you need in Christ. All that you ever need to be able to endure and to be patient, you have in Christ. The question is, what do you need it for? And it says, all endurance and patience. So you don't have to endure something that's not hard. Never. You don't ever, if something's easy, you just don't have to endure it. It's just, it's cake work for you. You never have to endure something that's not hard. You don't have to be patient unless you're provoked to be impatient. The funny thing about patient is that you usually, you usually need it when you're about to choke slam somebody. Anybody there? Amen? No? Just me? Just me? I'm the only one that does that? Okay. You need it in those moments when you're about to flip your lid and go Hulk mode on somebody. You guys, by your laughs, I know, you're, you know, you, I know you know what I'm talking about here. You need it in those moments when you're about to get grisly. Patience is this ability to keep your emotions calm when everything outside of you provokes you to be this raging storm. 
And I'm sure every one of us here has lost our temper. For, for some of us, it just looks a little bit uglier than others. For some of us, it looks really cute. It's like really nice. It's like, oh, you're cute. You're getting angry. And if it hasn't, if it hasn't happened in your life, then know, know that it's coming for you. It's coming right for you. It's going to happen. It might look ugly. It might look nice. But it feels impossible. When that happens, it feels impossible to control those emotions when you're pushed to your limit. Am I right? It feels like it just, it's automatic. So do you, do you see what Paul's saying to you, to the Colossian Christians? Do you see the encouragement that comes from this this morning? One of the marks of a Christ-reflecting life is a life experiencing God's empowerment to endure and to be patient when the temperature of life gets really hot. And it's with joy. Exuberant joy. This, the kind of endurance and patience Paul is talking about here is doing so with joy. So I'm not saying, here's what I'm not saying. I'm not saying it's a happy-go-lucky time for you. It's not happy-go-lucky all the time. When you're going through the thick of it, it's tough. And you know it. You cry, you scream, you sweat, you hurt, you groan, and you moan. But you genuinely believe that God is for you. In that moment, you believe God is for you. You don't, you don't get there right away. It's not like flipping a switch. You strive to get there. Because when you hurt, it hurts. But by the by the strength of the Lord, you're able to rise up towards joy. And Paul is saying this is possible because God strengthens you in those moments. The kind of joy that echoes what Paul saying, says in, in, in Philippians 1.21, that to live is Christ and to die is gain. To die is gain. To live is Christ, to die is gain. Either one, I'll take both. But to die is gain. You can't say that unless there's joy in you. And here's the good news. You are strengthened from that kind of, for that kind of joy. You're, you're not alone in this. So the last mark of a Christ-reflecting life is a thankful one. Look at verse 12. Giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. See, when Paul says giving thanks, he's actually talking about something that's continually happened. It's a, it's a pattern in your heart. Kind of like this habit. Listen to why you're thankful in the rest of verse 12 through 14 again. God thanks the Father, or giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom you have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. The Lord has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. See, back in verse 5, Paul talked about this hope laid up for you in heaven, this inheritance that, that you have a place in God's house. You have a seat there. You have a place in his kingdom. You have this eternal life that you will be with God forever, the promise that's unbreakable that you will be with God forever. That's the inheritance. You are no longer a part of the kingdom of darkness where you are at the mercy of sin's enslaving power and Satan's rule. You are now, instead, you, if your hope is in Christ, you have been delivered from the kingdom of darkness into, transferred into the kingdom of Jesus, the beloved Son. A Christ-reflecting life looks back at all this and it's just thankful for what God has done in your life. You worship. You worship. And it's not kind of like the, the hand 24-7, the people who've got shoulders for days. It's not that kind of worship. It's kind of talking about a heart whose attitude is thankful towards Jesus. Thankful towards, a heart that's just, man, oh Lord, thank you so much. The kind of stuff that like makes you cry in front of people when you first get up. 
It's a heart that's, that's worshiping the Lord in the good and the bad, a heart that loves Jesus, not just in word, but in action, while enduring and being patient, loving and serving people in duty and delight. You love to do it when you consider what Christ has done for you. Focused on what Christ has done for you. Thankful. A Christ-reflecting refle- life is growing, it's empowered, and it's thankful. So here's what I want to encourage you to do with the, these pictures, these three pictures that Paul gives us. Look, of, look at them as marks of the Christian life. Look at them as marks. You can grow in these. Hear that. This Christ-reflecting life, you can grow in these. These aren't benchmarks. These aren't performance markers. They are the result of God working in your life to really grasp what he's done in your life as a Christian. And if you're not a Christian this morning, hear the way that God treats anybody who would put their hope in Christ and really receive him for who he is. If you submit to his rule, if you submit to his leadership, he's for you. If you submit to his rule and leadership over your life, he doesn't leave you to yourself. He actually wants you to be dependent on him. He wants you to really trust and lean on him. He gives you what you need to live how you're supposed to. You are not alone, my friend. You won't be alone if you trust in Jesus' leadership and his rule over your life. He's not this weird, raging ruler. He is a kind, gentle ruler. Just read this morning. The way to be great is to go low, to serve. That Jesus, the, the Son of God, the King, he came down to serve and ultimately lay down his life for many. So instead of trying to figure out what you need to do, I think you just need to remember that this is a prayer. This is a prayer, and Paul's intentions for telling them about this prayer is to instruct them, but he is actually praying for this. I'm guessing that even after this letter is sent, he's still praying for this. The moment he remembers them, he's praying that God would fill them with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom so that they could walk in a manner fully pleasing to the Lord, increasing in the knowledge of God while bearing fruit, being strengthened by the Lord according to his glorious might, being thankful for what he has done for them. See, this is a prayer. Paul is praying this for them, and he knows that it's going to be effective. He knows he's not throwing pithy words at that. He knows that God's going to hear him, and he's going to respond. So instead of trying to figure out what you need to do this morning to, to live a life pleasing to the Lord, I think you just need to pray. Before you leave this place, don't go thinking, man, I got my list, especially A-type personalities. You guys, man, I got the schedule, I got the list, I'm, I'm ready to go. I got it on my, my app. No, just chill out and pray. Bend your heart towards the Lord and look right at him and pray. Pray just like Paul did here. You could adopt this prayer. You could say it word for word and make it personal. That's what you could do this morning. Really practical. You could do that this morning and pray this prayer often. Do it often. You can pray it after you spend some time with Jesus through the Bible and prayer. You You can pray it when you're going through some relational conflict in the midst of it. In the midst of the conflict. You can pray it when you're struggling to love someone else or, to, or you're struggling to serve someone else. You can pray it for other people. If you've got somebody in this room that you know that, that needs the Lord's help, you can pray this prayer for them right now. You can, you can pray when you have absolutely no idea what to pray for. You just sit in your chair, wherever you sit, and you close your eyes and it's just foggy. Whip this out. Because you're asking God to give you the insight for how to live in all circumstances. 
If you're praying this for someone else, you're asking God to give them insight to know what to do in all circumstances. What, what's God's desire for them in all circumstances? And so gospel-centered life is a spirit-depending, Christ-reflecting life. It comes from God through the Holy Spirit. You're dependent on the Holy Spirit for this. This doesn't come from you. This wisdom and insight and understanding, it comes from Christ. Or it comes from the Holy Spirit. You live your life reflecting Christ. You live your life reflecting who he is to you, what he has done. And the Christ-reflecting life looks like growing, being empowered, and thankful. So my hope for you guys this morning is that you would not leave this room thinking, what do I need to do for my life to look like this? I hope you leave this room thinking that you're depending on Christ. You're depending on Jesus. That You don't leave this place thinking that you need to make yourself worthy to Jesus this morning because he qualifies you. And he empowers you. He empowers you to do it. He's for you. He's with you. He's for you. He has not left you. Present with you. So the gospel doesn't doesn't come to you saying, change your behavior. You need to be a better person. That's not what the gospel does. It doesn't come straight through behavior. It goes to the core of you. The gospel, through this gospel, Jesus gives you a new identity and purpose. He redeems your broken and corrupt heart. He, he gives you a new hope now and for the future. He gives you a new worldview because he actually is now your new worldview. So would you center your life on this gospel? Would you do that this morning? Center and stake your life on Christ this morning. That you'd be able to say, not I, but Christ in me. Let's pray. Lord, I say the exact same thing. Lord, for us this morning, after receiving this, after hearing your word to us this morning, would you fill us with a knowledge of your will? And all spiritual wisdom and understanding. God, because we need that. And if we're going to live in a a way that really reflects your worth to the world, Lord, we need you to give to us. We need you to give that to us. We know that you're not this this selfish, self-centered father, you're, you, are, you are so filled with joy to give to us. And so, Lord, we need you. We, we know that you desire for us to live in a certain way, but you, we know that you have not said to us, you need to figure that out by yourself. We, we know that, that what, we, what you call us to do, you, you actually give to us to do. And so help us, Lord, to bear fruit and every good work. Help that to happen as we increase in knowing you. Help us to, to spend time knowing you. Lord, that we, that we would look at your word and then ask for help to understand it. Lord, would you fill us with strength? Give us strength. Empower us with strength that, that really matches your might. The same power that raised Christ from the dead. Would you match that? Would you give us that kind of strength, Lord? For all endurance, all patience, the things that are before us that we don't even know is coming. God, would you strengthen us for that? And God, as a result of giving to us, Lord, would you fill our hearts with thankfulness? Would we look back at what Christ has done for us and really give us thankful hearts? Lord, we thank you and we love you and we trust you. In your name we pray. Amen.